0: Let's pray together. Lord God, we thank you this morning that we can gather together as your people to worship you, worship the King. God, today together we proclaim the Lord. The Lord reigns through our singing, Lord God. And as we go to your word this morning, I pray that we would feast upon it, God, that it would sustain us, that it would satisfy us, God, that we'd be ready and prepared to, to go into our week uh, wholly relying on you as dependent creatures, wholly relying on everything that you've provided for us as we, uh, as we seek to know you and make you known throughout our week. God, and as we focus our attention towards the Lord's table this morning, God, would our hearts be prepared to receive and to declare together that Jesus Christ is the only way to have forgiveness of sins and the only way to God the Father. God may we this morning as your people be prepared to make that declaration uh, more readily than we have in the past God and would you transform us into people who are who are those who are your ambassadors God who more deeply understand what it or know what it means to be your people and those who you have set apart so that the fame of your name might cover the earth as the waters cover the sea God, we thank you for these things this morning. It's in Jesus' name that we pray. Amen. John chapter 6. I'm going to read verses 15 through 21 this morning. John six fifteen through 21. The Apostle John, under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, writes, Perceiving then that they were about to come and take him by force to make him king, Jesus withdrew again to the mountain by himself. Then they were glad to take him into the boat and immediately the boat was at the land to which they were going. Israel, the nation of Israel has a complicated history uh, with the idea of kingship and Throughout Israel's history, many kings ruled. Uh, Some good, like King David, who we know a lot of, composed many of the psalms. Uh, King David was a good king in God's sight, but many were, were pretty terrible. And it's important to note that Israel didn't always have a king. If you're reading through the Bible with us, this week we got into the book of Exodus and uh, and um, we met Moses for the first time and Moses leads the people out of Egypt even as we read yesterday in our Bible reading plan um, but he was not a, a king he was a prophet and and then after Moses Moses raised up a man to follow suit and to to um, to take over after him and his name was Joshua um, and Joshua was not a king and then after Joshua uh, there were judges in Israel and they ruled over the nation of Israel as judges, but these people were not monarchs. But when you're reading your Bible and you get to 1 Samuel, things start to heat up on the king front, Um, and the people of Israel decide that they want a king. Samuel, the prophet, uh, appointed his sons as judges in Israel right away in the book of 1 Samuel, but the Israelites weren't pleased with that arrangement because Samuel's sons weren't exactly upright, upright guys. And so the elders of Israel went to Samuel and they demand a governmental overhaul. They say we want a monarchy. We we want a king. And in in uh, 1 Samuel chapter 8 verse 5 they say now to Samuel they say now appoint us a king to judge us like all the nations. And God tells Samuel to do it, but he tells them to we tell Samuel, warn the people what they're getting into, because the king he's going to um, he's going to take your sons and make them soldiers and take them off to fight his battles. And He's going to take your daughters and turn them into bakers and servants in his in his uh, in his um, in in his service. And they're going to wage war. A king will wage war, and he's going to take your crops and he's going to feed his armies, and he's going to take your servants to serve him. And God told Samuel, uh, ultimately, he says, the people, or they, have not rejected you, but they've rejected me from being king over them. It... (laughs) So Samuel tells them all of these things and they they say, we don't care. Give us a king anyways. And then in uh, verses 19 and 20 in 1 Samuel 8, they say, no, but there shall be a king over us that we also may be like all the nations and that our king may judge us and go out before us and fight our battles. So Samuel then anoints Saul king. That experiment goes badly. And then after Saul, we get David who is anointed king after that, and then a long succession of kings uh, throughout the Old Testament. But if we fast forward to Jesus's day, we fast forward to Jesus's day, um, we can use the word king to describe some of the rulers in Israel at the time, uh, but then we'd have to use that word pretty loosely because puppet politician would probably be better word um, to describe the rulers in Israel uh, during Jesus's day. But the Jewish people were always on the lookout for the Messiah. They were always on the lookout for one who would come to them as a liberator or a savior. And he would bring a new glorious future for the for the people. For the age of Israel. It would be an age that would be would be marked by many of the things that they had begun to see in Jesus' ministry here on earth. And the Messiah would be a king or uh, potentially a high priest. And so in verse 14, what we read last week, the people say, right after Jesus feeds the 5,000 people with with, uh, five loaves and two fish, they say, "Um, uh, this indeed is the prophet who has come into the world. And so thinking, well, let's just take the next step. Let's just go ahead and make him king, and that's what we see here at the beginning of our text this morning in verse 15. They uh, perceiving then that they were about to come and t- take him by force to make him king. Now that wasn't entirely silliness, like I alluded to a moment ago. There are actually things that Jesus was doing that would be that would mark the uh, the the coming of the Messiah. The people were acting along the lines of what they knew. Because Jesus had declared that he was the Messiah, he said it explicitly to the Samaritan woman at the well. He said, that's me. Um, but then in other places also, when he had turned water into wine at the wedding at Cana, the the uh, the Messiah was coming with much wine and with much feasting. And he had just brought about a feast. From five loaves, two fish, 5,000 men plus women and children feasted on what Jesus brought about out of very little. There was feasting. There was drinking. There was celebration. There was healing. The people were beginning to piece it together. They were beginning to see it. Now, they didn't see it fully, and they didn't see it necessarily correctly, but they did see it. So when we get to verse 15, and we find out that they are going to come and make him king, Um, it's not entirely strange based on what's happened so far. They wanted someone to lead. They were on the lookout for the Messiah. Now, Jesus withdraws, we're told. We want to explore that together. But I want to propose to you this morning that this passage, these verses here, are verses about Jesus' true kingship they're about the nature of Jesus's kingship he doesn't withdraw because he's not king he withdraws because the steps that the people are taking are the wrong way for him to become king so the first thing that i want to explore with you this morning is more in depth in that verse 15 jesus's kingship isn't by earthly appointment jesus's kingship isn't by earthly appointment, we know how a king becomes a king, right? Most of the time, it's succession. Most of the time, when uh, a king gets old and he dies, a male heir comes and succeeds him, takes over for him, takes his throne. Or, or, or a king could become king by um, by um, by leading a revolution or a revolt or conquering lands or or peoples a revolution is what these people might have had in mind they would name a well equipped leader to lead that revolution to lead them as as king that's what the people attempt here they see Jesus is an exceptional guy he's done some pretty exceptional th- things he appears to be from god and they want to make him king they want to make they want him to lead them but what Jesus does here is he he escapes. He moves away. He withdraws from them to the mountain by himself. He doesn't accept their appointment because his kingship doesn't look like worldly kingship. His kingship doesn't look like worldly kingship. Throughout John's gospel, Jesus has been providing again those indicators that he's the Messiah. But this attempt to make Jesus king is premature and it's problematic. This attempt to make Jesus king is premature and it's problematic. Here's why it's premature. Because the assumption of Jesus's kingship required his humiliation before his exaltation. The assumption of Jesus's kingship required his humiliation before his exaltation. Here's what that means. Here's what I mean by that. God's plan was that Jesus would be brought low before he would be lifted up. He would be brought low before he would be lifted up. Jesus would be robbed of everything kingly in order that he could rightly assume an eternal kingship. In order to be recognized as king truly, Jesus would be falsely accused. He would be tried by those puppet politicians that we talked about earlier. And cowards. He would be stripped, he would be beaten, he would be publicly executed by crucifixion. And even before all of that, Jesus left heaven's comforts to dwell among people in a sin soaked cesspool of decay by comparison. The Apostle Paul writes about this in Philippians chapter 2, in verse 8 he says, And being found in human form, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. Jesus could not accept the, the, the kingship that they were offering him in verse 15, that these people were offering him in verse 15, because he had not been yet humbled to the point of death, even death on a cross. And this is the God-appointed path that was set for him. The God-appointed path that Jesus was set to follow. But if you go on to that Philippians 2 passage in verses 9 and 10, you find that there is a therefore, that there is a result to Jesus being humbled, becoming obedient even to the point of death, death on a cross. And the result is, therefore, God has highly exalted him. Humiliation and then exaltation. God has highly exalted him and bestowed on him the name that is above every name. So that at the name of Jesus, every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth. And every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. So, before Jesus is exalted as king, he needs to be humbled as sacrifice. So the people's attempts to make Jesus King are premature. But they're also problematic for several different reasons, but I want to highlight one. They're problematic, a lot of which we just talked about, but they're problematic because nothing else could pay for the sins of the people who would make up the kingdom, make up Jesus' kingdom, except for the blood of the king himself. Nothing else could pay for the sins of the people who would make up Jesus' kingdom except for the blood of the king himself. Calvin puts it like this. He says, if he had permitted himself to be now made king, his spiritual kingdom would have been ruined. The gospel would have been stamped with everlasting infamy and the hope of salvation would have been utterly destroyed. Because the people who sought to make Jesus king did so because their bellies were full, because their sicknesses were healed. And because the temporary realities that they thought were the most important things had been satisfied for the moment. But these people needed far more than full stomachs and, and their physical healing. These people, Jesus knew, they needed new life. They needed new birth. They needed forgiveness of sins that can only come through the sacrifice of Christ. And so there's no option here for Jesus. There's no option. It wasn't just simply, oh, I could take the crown now, or maybe not. It was legitimately, no, there's no option standing before me today. To accept an earthly kingship from these people in verse 15 would be to exchange his mission to redeem a people for eternity through the shedding of his blood on the cross for some temporary political jockeying. That's what he would be exchanging. The second would be less painful, but it would be infinitely cruel. Jesus' kingship is not brought about by earthly appointment. The people's attempt to make Jesus king in the way they did was premature and it was problematic. The second thing I want you to see this morning is in verses 16 through 21. Because in 16 through 21, here we find Jesus' true kingship and the recognition of that true kingship by creation. The people in verse 15 recognize Jesus' kingship wrongly. Creation in verses 16 through 21 uh, recognize it correctly. This is an interesting dynamic. Because after Jesus slips out of the grasp of the crowd, the disciples make their way to the Sea of Galilee, we're told. They get in a boat, and it's not clear exactly why Jesus and the disciples split up here, but they do. Jesus withdrew to the mountain, um, and that must have meant that he went away from the disciples. The disciples were with the crowd, apparently. And so Jesus uh, withdraws to the mountain, the disciples uh, go down to the sea. And they get in the boat, and they start across the sea to Capernaum, and that that... Capernaum was on the other side of the Sea of Galilee, from where Jesus feeds the crowd. Now, the the Sea of Galilee, um, often when we hear Sea of Galilee, we think big body of water. Um, but just to give you a little bit of a reference here, the Sea of Galilee is about 20% of the size of Devil's Lake. So it's not, it's not huge. But... Um, Devil's Lake is a big lake, but the the surface area of the Sea of Galilee is only about 20 percent of that. It's pretty round compared to Devil's Lake, that goes kind of all over the place. But but it's it's about 20 percent of the size. The Sea of Galilee at its widest point is about eight miles apart. So the the trip that the disciples took would have been across the northern part. Would have been probably much less than eight miles. They didn't go from the widest point across, but they would have gone across the northern part back to Capernaum. Now, John tells us that it's getting dark and the weather takes a turn and it's getting rough. But when they go three or four miles in, they're rowing, so it's probably relatively slow. They're rowing. Jesus comes to them walking on the water. Now, I want you to stop because you, you've you heard this a million times. Jesus walks on the water. Um it's embedded in popular culture when you think about Jesus to think about him walking on the water. And no one is jumping up right now saying, "What did Jesus do?" because you all you knew that know that that's happened and all of your faces are pretty just like stoic. But the the reality is this is incredible. This is incredible what Jesus does here. This should cause us to say, and for the readers of John's Gospel, then the first century, cause us to say, Jesus did what? What did he do? He came walking across the water? Again, this is embedded in popular culture. We, like, if you see Jesus in, in popular culture, most of the time it's pretty uh, disrespectful. But, like, he's doing things like walking on the water, and that gives us an indication that it's Jesus. But but when it's embedded in popular culture, sometimes we don't realize exactly how incredible it is that someone was walking on water. I don't care what technology you have right now, you, you right now as a person could not go walk on on water. Jesus does this. But what I want you to see this morning is not the reason why or the, or how know that Jesus did because he did, but I want you to see why Jesus did. Why did Jesus walk on the water? Was it just to be like, hey guys, I'm cool. No, it was far. It goes far deeper than that. Because when the crowd cra- tries to grab Jesus and make him king in verse 15, what they couldn't do is what the water was about to do. They could not attest to Jesus' true kingship. But instead, what we learn immediately following is that creation is that which actually understands and attests to Jesus' true kingship. Creation is the thing that recognizes as a king rightly, not these people who want to seize him before his mission is complete. But it is creation that actually understands and attests to Jesus' true kingship. The question is how? Because the very laws of nature are subject to him. The very water molecules that were under his feet that were formed by him are his subjects. You've had it drilled into your head. I've had it drilled into my head that these laws of nature are irrefutable. They cannot be tampered with. They cannot be messed with. We cannot move them. They are, time and time again, proved to be true. But we're meant to learn that these things had a beginning. That the laws of nature do not exist apart from Jesus Christ. Jesus Christ is not subject to the laws of nature. They are His subjects. Jesus is the king of all creation. That's what we're supposed to understand. Jesus is the king of all creation. Kings have subjects. Kings have domains. Kings are sovereign. There is nothing that is not subject to King Jesus. There is nothing that is not within the domain of King Jesus. There is nothing that King Jesus is not sovereign over. J.C. Ryle says it like this. He says, It was just as easy for Jesus to walk on the sea as to form the sea at the beginning. Just as easy to suspend the common laws of nature as they are called, as to impose those laws at the first. Learned men talk solemn nonsense, and sometimes about the eternal fixity of the laws of nature, as if they were above God himself and could never be suspended it is well to be reminded by sometimes or sometimes by such miracles as that before us that those so-called laws of nature are neither immutable nor eternal they had at a beginning and they will one day have an end the sea of galilee right here recognizes the blessed feet of the one who in isaiah 66:1 says heaven is my throne and earth is my footstool. And as his subjects, the water and the wind and all of creation is quick to carry out the will of the one true and eternal king. So we see then the people who try to make Jesus king, but understand his kingship wrongly. And then we're immediately thrown into this understanding that creation sees Jesus' kingship properly. And that's going to bring us in our time towards the Lord's table. But I want you to consider a few things with me this morning. Just two things, two implications for us if this is true about who Jesus is, uh, then, then and creation properly attests to and understands the kingship of Jesus Christ, then I want you to uh, think about two things with me. The first is this. Jesus is the king that sets us apart. Jesus is the king that sets us apart. Remember, at the beginning of our time, we were talking about 1 Samuel chapter 8. 1 Samuel chapter 8, where the Israelites want a king, and they are communicating to to Samuel about that. In verse 5 and in verse 20, they give a reasoning. They give a reasoning for wanting a king. And it's because they say, we want to be like the nations. We want to be like the nations. But in the Old Testament, God is continually telling the the people to be distinct from or different from the nations. He's continually telling them to, to not be like the nations in their practices. And one way was to understand that God was their king. Again, God said, they have not rejected you. He says this to Samuel, they have not rejected you but they have rejected me from being king over them. God's people are set apart when they submit to God as their king. Our society is always looking for politicians or government solutions to problems that we have. We're always looking to something outside of us. Something beyond us in this world, in this earthly realm to solve the problems that we have. But Christians should not think this way. Our sovereign subjects, our king's subjects include the very laws of nature. Jesus walks across the water in the darkness and the storm and reminds us to not be afraid. That's what he says here to the disciples. He says to them, it is I, do not be afraid. People who hold on, or who hold power in our society say the exact opposite thing. In order to retain their power, they tell us to be afraid. They say, be afraid of COVID. Be afraid of the political turmoil that's going around. Be afraid of a economy that's breaking down before your eyes. Be afraid of those things in order that we might keep our power. Jesus says the exact opposite thing. He says, do not be afraid. Who could say that outside of the one who holds our power? No one. People utilize fear in order that we would be driven to fulfill their personal agendas, to accumulate money and power for themselves. Jesus doesn't do this. He is a king of a kingdom that cannot be shaken. And so the one who walks on the water in the midst of the storm is the one who has the authority to tell us to not be afraid. Because he's the one who doesn't need to use fear to maintain his power. Because he's the one to whom all power belongs. So we're set apart because our king, King Jesus, to whom we submit fully, really truly can address our fears. The best the world can do is to show you the data and take a pretty good guess. (laughs) King Jesus writes the whole story. So the question is, when we say Jesus is the one, the king who sets us apart, the question becomes, do we look that different than the world? Do we look different than the world? Because this last year and a half, or plus, or whatever it's been now, has exposed a lot of our fears. Has exposed a lot of fears in Christians. Fear that doesn't look much different than the world's fears. many Christians appear to be drowning in fear. But we're the exact ones who have reason not to fear because of what Jesus does here. Because of the one who walks across the water, not in a pop culture, whatever sort of way, but in a Jesus walks across the water in order to show us that he's the king of creation sort of way. The king of creation walks across the water in the midst of the storms in your life and says, it is I, don't be afraid. C.S. Lewis writes in Mere Christianity, he says, the wartime posters tell us that careless talk costs lives. It is equally true that careless lives ta- cost talk. Our careless lives set the outer world talking, and we give them grounds for talking in ways that throws doubt on the truth of Christianity itself. When we talk about... And our lives smell of fear over pandemics and politics and madness and personal finances. It throws doubt on King Jesus and his ability to address our fears with himself. Why would men and women submit themselves to Christ's kingship when our lives speak of impotence and ignorance about fear? But don't forget, Jesus writes the whole story. Jesus writes the whole story. He doesn't set us apart to give us up over to our fears and let them overtake us. But he sets us apart, friends, for a very real purpose. And that's to show the world the unwavering security that he brings that nothing else can even come close to offering. No government official, no money in the bank, no set of best practices. Only Jesus can truly address our fears as the king of creation. We are set apart to show the world just that. The second implication that I want to draw out of this text this morning is We don't make Jesus king. We don't make Jesus king. Verse 15 is clear. It was not the men who made Jesus king. Jesus didn't king because men say so. The people in the crowd were fed with the five loaves and the two fish. They were not who would make Jesus king. And in every other instance in history, Every other instance of kingship in human history it required men to acknowledge openly that a man is king. People in modern Christianity, we get this wrong. Jesus' kingship isn't built on our acknowledgement. We recognize him as king because he truly is king. And we submit to him as king because he is truly king. But we don't make him king. How could we ever how could how could we be qualified the one who made everyone and everything the one who walks on the water the one who never sinned the perfect spotless son of god the lamb who takes away the sin of the world Jesus is an only king when you recognize him as king many of you in this room might be guilty of not giving Jesus any type of thought throughout the course of your week. But it doesn't mean, what that doesn't mean is that he's not king. He's king despite your thoughts towards him or your lack of thoughts towards him. Abraham Kuyper famously said, there is not a square inch in the world or in the whole domain of human existence over which Christ, who is sovereign over all, does not cry mine. In response to this, this week I heard someone say that they were, they considered themselves to be exuberantly Kuperian, which if they take that quote and you say, I am energized always by the fact that Jesus Christ is Lord and King of all creation. It is the driving force behind my life. There is not a square inch in the whole domain of our human existence over which Christ Uh, 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 over which Christ, who is our sovereign, over all does not cry, mine. We want to live like Jesus Christ is the king of all of life because he is. And one of the outworkings of a life submitted to Christ's kingship is a life that hears and responds to Jesus' words, do not be afraid. And I want to be clear here, because when we talk about this king, Christ our king, his office as king implies a whole lot of things for us. Like a life that ought to be given in unwavering and unrelenting service to him. A life that ought to be given in unwavering and unrelenting service to the church. That is his institution here on earth. That is what he set up before he left. He gave the church the commission to go and make disciples of all nations. And that includes practical service. It includes practical service of serving the church in the nursery or in by playing guitar on a Sunday morning. We should use our gifts and capacity to serve Christ, the King, in His church every week, if not every day. And if you're refusing to serve the church, practically, you're directly disobeying your King. But I'm not just thinking about practicals. I'm thinking about, I'm thinking about something deeper than just practicals—a life that ought to be given in unrelenting and unwavering service to. Jesus, to King Jesus in the church, includes your thoughts when you're driving in your car alone. Includes your words when you speak to your grandma, or to your kids, or to the co-worker who's always getting under your skin. A life that's given an unwavering and unrelenting service to Christ the King includes your stewardship of time and money and how you choose to to allocate them or excuse fear or anxiety because of them. Friends, we cannot go about our life casually viewing Jesus as king and be submitted to him wholly. We cannot casually view pornography regularly and be submitted in service to Christ the king who cries, mine over every square inch of creation. You cannot burst out in unchecked, unrepentant anger over and over again and be submitted to, in service to Christ your King who cries mine over every square inch of creation. You can't live in bitterness and blatant unforgiveness being, be submitted in service to Christ the King who cries mine over every square inch of creation. This is a call to stop fighting the fact that Jesus is your King and that you're not king. You're not sovereign. You're not God. You may want to be in charge. You may want to be in control of your life. You may want to live unbothered by the fact that Jesus is king. But friends, you can't. When Jesus walked across the water, he showed us that even if we don't truly correctly acknowledge him as king, the rocks in the water and the wind will. That moves us then to the Lord's table because it's this king, this king who then died for you and I. This king, sovereign over all of creation, the king and Lord of all things, was the one who died for you and for me. He saw in verse 13, he saw through an earthly attempt to put a crown on his head, And he looked forward to the cross. He looked forward to the humiliation that was required before he could be exalted and have the name that is above every other name. Before the exaltation, the humiliation, and that's what we celebrate this morning in the Lord's Supper. Jesus died for the forgiveness of your sins. Jesus died in your place, in the blood that was shed. There on that cross is what sets you apart and gives you the very strength and the ability to acknowledge him openly this morning as king. The Apostle Paul in 1 Corinthians 11 writes, For I received from the Lord what I also delivered to you, that the Lord Jesus on the night when he was betrayed took bread. And when he had given thanks, he broke it and said, This is my body which is for you. Do this in remembrance of me. In the same way, also he took the cup after supper saying, this cup is the new covenant in my blood. Do this as often as you drink it in remembrance of me. For as often as you eat this bread and drink this cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. So this morning, we're going to come to the table. We're going to celebrate the reality that Jesus's broken body, the bread that we're going to receive, Jesus's broken body was rightfully yours. And that Jesus' shed blood that we're going to drink this morning in the form of grape juice was rightfully yours. It should have been yours, but the king sacrificed himself for us. And then what do we do? We're called to proclaim his death until he returns. To know nothing among our friends and neighbors and co-workers and family members outside of Christ and him crucified. So I'm going to invite you then, the worship team will come forward in a moment, and I'm going to invite you then after I pray to come to the table to grab the elements, the bread, and then the the juice, to take them back to your seat and participate there. I want to point this out this morning. This is for followers of Jesus Christ. The Bible is very clear about the way that we approach the table we approach the table as those who have been covered by the righteousness of Christ, as those who have been who have been washed clean, and the forgiveness of our sins is found in the in the shedding of his blood. If you don't have not experienced that, if you've not trusted Jesus for the forgiveness of your sins, don't approach the table this morning. Just take a seat. No one's watching you, no one's judging you. Just sit back. Um, reflect on the things that have been communicated here this morning. And I'd love to talk to you afterwards or anyone who you've seen up front this morning would love to talk to you about Jesus and the forgiveness of sins that's contained there. Parents, if you have kids here and and they have not yet made a credible profession of faith, would you just allow them to observe and use this as an opportunity to share the gospel with them as well. I'm going to pray. The worship team is going to come up. And then when you're prepared in your own heart, Come up and grab the elements and make your way back to your seat to receive them. Lord Jesus, this morning, we thank you. We thank you that you are king over all creation. God, we praise you that you have clearly demonstrated to us how we can know you and how we can be set apart in you. God, would you work in us now? even as we consider the things that we might be fearful of. God, would we consider that the kingship of Jesus is demonstrated to us in order that we would, as your people, not be afraid. God, that the things of this earth would not weigh us down or bog us down, but that we would look to the one who is sovereign over all creation. Would we look to the one whose, whose throne is in heaven, and whose footstool is the very earth. God we thank you this morning. God as we receive these elements, God would you impart grace to us. God would we as your people be prepared and and ready to show the world the set apartness that we have in Christ our king. It's in Jesus name that we pray this morning. Amen.